afternoon again. Um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 11 today, and I'm sure you remember vividly everything I said in Acts chapter 10 two weeks ago. Um, it's the same story. Peter is repeating what happened to him at Cornelius' house, and we talked about that and the, kind of the problems of uh, prejudice and how they affect us in the church a little bit. Uh, two weeks ago, and it's the same story told again because it's a big deal in the Bible. This is when uh, Gentiles first whole scale start becoming Christians, and it's a big category changer for the Jewish Christians, which was everybody that was a Christian up till this point, to figure out how do you work this out? How do Gentiles become uh, full-fledged Christians like the Jewish ones? And what all has to change for them and what all doesn't have to change for them. And they started facing the problems that the church has faced ever since, which is how do you translate uh, the Christian hope, the good news about Jesus, from one culture to the next uh, without just importing one culture to the next? You know, the message stays the same, but the cultures change. And it's very hard to know like what all has to change when someone converts to Christianity and what doesn't have to change when someone converts? And church starts wrestling with it right here, and we're still wrestling with it today. So that's what we're going to think about uh, as we re, uh, rehearse again the story of Peter going to Cornelius' house and Cornelius and his family becoming Christians. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, please uh, help us as we think about this, the the uh, truth of the information isn't that hard for us, but the attitudes that are behind the problems are all of our attitudes. And we would love to be freed from them somewhat and helped in this. And so we ask that you would speak to us through your word and do your work to change us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, read with me, beginning at verse 1 here in Acts 11. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. He said, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. And this happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were and sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them and make no distinction. Well, these six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he'd seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa, bring Simon, who's called Peter. And he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And I began to, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Well, it's in God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And this is the word of the Lord. Wondered if I would catch you. It was a typo, and it was my fault. <laughs> but it wasn't the gospel reading. I had to make a decision, an audible. So I'm going to read you a letter that is a, it's a, it's a pretty bad example of Christians trying to communicate across cultural lines with the gospel. And I'm trying to use a very negative example so you won't feel so bad about yourself. So, a little bit long, but I think it's interesting, and uh, just bear with me. Dear Margaret, you'll never guess what I'll be doing next Wednesday night. I'm going to be leading a Bible study in a predominantly black ghetto on the south side of Chicago. It's a long story. A young couple at our church, Ed and Linda Riley, have been holding Wednesday night Bible study in one of the worst parts of the city. Well, last week was their last week. They're quitting. They say the Lord must not want them there anymore. They haven't gotten any response. No one's been saved, and they've been there every Wednesday night for two months. It's a shame because Ed and Linda have a burden for the souls of these poor people. And believe me, the people are poor. It's only 50 miles from Palatine to the city, but it seems like thousands. What a contrast from lawns and trees to concrete and tall buildings. And Ed tells me the unemployment rate's higher than 40%. Probably because most of the people have uh, never gotten beyond the seventh grade, and they don't make their children go to school either. Um, I want to observe their last study and how they did things, but I wasn't prepared for how these people lived. Uh, the streets are so narrow and crowded with parked cars, kids playing in the street, oblivious to traffic, broken glass, garbage scattered everywhere, and people stared suspiciously at us as we parked and entered the building. We went up five flights of stairs through garbage and filth and past tightly closed doors. Ed unlocked one of the doors and entered in and oh, what a relief. A clean room. It's cracked wallpaper and boarded over windows, but clean. I felt like I could breathe again. Ed said they'd hoped to get some chairs and put up some curtains, but they never got around to it. Well, we went back downstairs and outside to round up some kids. Ed handed me a bundle of tracts and said they usually passed them out as they invited people. Only a few uh, curious boys followed us upstairs. They were young, probably 7 to 12 years old, and they too were very dirty. We tried to sing some hymns, but it turned into a trio because they didn't know any hymns. And only one boy had ever been to church before. Ed remarked they all looked new to him. None of them had been to the Bible study before. So Ed read John 3.16 and told the boys about God's love for them. But it didn't seem to be sinking in. Finally, the eldest boy asked, Well, if God loves us, why do we live in a dump? And that started it. He said the others agreed and added more, not enough food to eat, divorced parents, kicked out of school, crowded apartments, and the garbage. I thought they didn't notice, but apparently they just resigned themselves to it. I must confess, Margaret, I couldn't answer their questions either. Uh, Finally, Ed just dismissed them since they wouldn't settle down. He said most of the studies ended this way, with complaints and questions over how God could love them and let them live this way. Well, we left 
in silence, wondering why the kids seem to care more about food than about going to heaven. I wondered, can I do anything different? Pray for guidance for me. I'll let you know how it turns out. Uh, it's not that extreme an example. Uh, Christians have typically been pretty tin-eared and ham-fisted when we try to reach across cultural lines, um, translating the Christian hope uh, without translating your culture across with it is apparently just really hard to do. And uh, church has always struggled with it. Makes you sort of wonder, what, um, what's the church supposed to do with cultural differences? Especially you live where we do and you get a pretty big mix of cultural backgrounds and things. And so we have to live with each other and figure that out. And then as we invite people to come into the church, we have to be able to tell them, like, if you become a Christian, this needs to change. This doesn't necessarily have to change. And figuring out which ones of those things to say is a pretty tricky equation. So I want us to talk kind of those two questions. What has to change when you convert to Christianity and what doesn't have to change when you convert? And uh, one of these is why people unfamiliar with Christianity get surprised by this. And the other is why people very familiar with Christianity get surprised. So first, let's talk about uh, what has to change when you convert. And this is the answer that tends to surprise people less familiar with the faith. Because the only things that really have to change when you convert have to do with Jesus himself. The very central beliefs of the faith. And you can tell, as Peter tells the story here and in the chapter before, um, that what he said to Cornelius about what he needed to know was just the basic facts about Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. In verse 17 here, Um, He says, you know, they got the same gift we got when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really what makes someone a Christian is if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, not just that he exists, but uh, what he who he is and what he came to do. Last chapter, when Peter told the story, said to Cornelius, he talked about Jesus life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection. Um, Everybody says it's an outline of the gospel of Mark, which I didn't know, but. Mark relied on Peter to, for his writing of the gospel. And so Peter's story about what had happened with Jesus, he told to Cornelius. And um, it was just the basic events of his life. And here in verse 14, uh, he says, uh, Cornelius was expecting someone to come to declare a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And uh, saved is very religious language, but Cornelius was a religious man. It means uh, reconciled to God and rescued from our plight, uh, living in a world where our war of independence against God has broken everything, our relationships with Him and each other and the environment and everything. And Jesus is coming to rescue us from these things and to set us and the world back right. And it's the message about Jesus that you believe uh, that puts you in touch with Jesus' rescue and his healing in your life. This is what Peter told Cornelius. And he told him at the end of the last chapter, everyone who believes in the name of the Lord Jesus will receive forgiveness of their sins through his name. You believe in Jesus, you receive forgiveness of sins through his name. And then at the end of this chapter in 18, he says, God has granted to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. So... If you've been around church for a while, you think, yeah, of course, that's obvious. Those are, that's the basics, right, of the Christian faith. That's 
Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, what it means to basic, have basic Christian belief. It's not surprising to you to hear that that's what Peter told Cornelius. But if you're less familiar with Christianity, what's really surprising about this is that this is what Peter told Cornelius. Because Cornelius was a good dude. I mean, he was probably more moral and religious than you are. Um, he it says when it introduces him at the beginning of chapter 10 that he was a devout God-fearer. means he was a Jew in all but circumcision, basically. And um, he gave alms generously to the poor, and he prayed continually, and he led his household really well and generously. He was an upright guy, white sheep of the family, um, somebody who takes care of the other screw-ups who are around and things. And he's the, he's the guy that you would congratulate uh, when you see him and say, that's what we're trying to be. We're trying to raise our kids to be like Cornelius. And when Peter goes to him, he doesn't say... He's bringing this message from an angel that came in a vision. You'd think the message would be, congratulations, right? You're killing it. We're so proud of you. Thank you for your service, right? Um, we'd like to you know, have you come speak at our conference because what we need is more people like you. Right? You'd think, we need Cornelius's. He's great. And what's the message Cornelius gets instead? There is a possible way that you might be saved and reconciled to God. But there's only one way. And it took drastic means. It took the life and death of the Holy Son of God for you to have any chance at all of being right with God. And people hear that and you think, you've got to be kidding. Like, here's a sincere, devout, religious person, and you're telling me that his only hope is that Jesus lived and died for him? That just sounds crazy. Surely, somebody who's devout and generous and sincere is okay with God. And Peter said, no, he's not. It's, it's, it's as surprising as it was like in our gospel reading when uh, Nicodemus, the Pharisee, came to Jesus. And he was a very observant religious leader, uh, very strict morally, uh, very serious and sincere about his faith. And Jesus didn't say to him, wow. We've been looking for some movers and shakers, especially like religious leaders to be a part of our movement. You know, if you'll give your testimony at our next meeting, I think it'll be really powerful. Now he says, um, unless you're born again, you're never going to sniff the kingdom of God. You said that to Nicodemus? He's, he's the best guy, right? I mean, he's, he's A-team, religious, God side of things. And he's told, no, if you're not born again, there's no hope for you with God. You won't get close to the kingdom. It's a shocking message. It really is. But most people assume that the Christian good news is that if you'll give your life to Jesus, you can straighten up and fly right and finally be a good person. That moral reform is the, is the substance of Christian conversion. That you convert, you'll, get, you'll be good now. And that's what we're looking for is people to be good. And we're happy anytime we see people being good. And it really isn't the Christian message at all. The Christian message is no matter how good you are, no matter how moral and religious or sincere you are, you need to be reconciled to God uh, through Jesus Christ. And that message shocks good people. It just shocks good people. You know, who've tried hard, who've been responsible, paid their taxes, taken care of other people. 
uh, pull people, other people out of the ditch when they get in trouble. And you come to them and you say, you need to be reconciled to God. It's very offensive. Uh, that's why the Christian uh, message has such sharp edges on it a lot of times. And it's also why um, some of the people who are farthest away from God and Jesus are the most moral and religious people you know. And that's strange. I think the people I pray for all the time about becoming Christians, the ones I worry most about are the ones that are responsible, moral, upright, good citizens. Because I just think, how in the world are they ever going to think they need Jesus? And I always worry when I pray for them that I'm like inviting some crisis into their life because generally you think that's how somebody's going to feel their need of Jesus is if they, if they bump into real serious trouble or have the curtain pulled back on their hearts where they're living independent lives of self-reliance where they don't need Jesus at all. So that's what surprises people newer to the faith is that the good people are told they need to repent and turn to Jesus as their only hope. The thing that confuses religious familiar people who've been around church a lot is um, that converts don't have to change their culture to become Christians. And for Peter and his friends of the circumcision party, and I'm just thinking that's not a self-appellation. They didn't say, (laughs) we're the circumcision party and make bumper stickers about that. That's a bad name for your group, I think, circumcision party. It doesn't even sound like a party. The, uh, but the thing that shocked them was, okay, here, here are these Gentiles. This is a European. He's an Italian Roman officer in the army who accepts Jesus as the Messiah, puts his faith in Jesus. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes to them in the same obvious ways that he came to the Jewish new Christians at the day of Pentecost. And he's baptized without becoming Jewish. And this was unknown and unheard of and the last thing they expected. Like, how can he be in like us and not be Jewish? I mean, surely... I mean, they had read the Old Testament a lot. You know, the Old Testament's full of all all this language about the nation's... Uh, believing that the Israel's going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And we read that hilarious passage in the Old Testament in Isaiah about how the highway is going to go from Egypt to Assyria and Israel's going to be third amongst God's people. You know, Egypt, my son. Crazy talk that the, Assyria, the, the enemies of Israel are going to be worshiping the true God. So there's the idea that eventually, you know, all the nations are going to be touched by the worship of the true God. But the assumption always was that they'll all become Jewish, right? They'll all come to the temple. They'll all be circumcised. They'll all be kosher, right? They're, they're going to become culturally Jewish. They're going to learn Aramaic or Hebrew. Um, the idea that they're going to stay culturally unchanged and yet be fully included in God's people, that, didn't, that did not compute, right? That's crazy. Surely, when... When people get right with God, and that has time to form a little bit, then surely they'll be just like me, right? I mean, eventually, we may have differences. At first, because they're green, right? They're newbies. But eventually, they'll come to share all of my uh, prejudices, assumptions, and preferences, you know? Um, Eventually, surely, right? Because all of my cultural assumptions really 
are holy when it comes down to it. I mean, I can give you biblical arguments for them. So surely maturity means they're going to be like me. Surely converts are going to have to become Jewish. And they just didn't. And you got a clue that this is how it was going to be at Pentecost originally. Uh, you remember the, the miracle at Pentecost when uh, everybody spoke in other languages. The flames that looked like fire came down on individuals' heads from people all over the world who were there worshiping. Um, the miracle wasn't that suddenly everybody could speak Aramaic so they could be good Jews. The miracle was everyone heard the good news about Jesus in their own tongue. And that was the first clue that, look, this thing is not going to, this message is not going to be transported with a bunch of cultural baggage. It's going to be the message itself, and it's going to have cultural expression uh, in all the various cultures of the world. Um, So we're not going to have a monoculture in the church. We're going to have a bunch of various cultures of believers all over the world in the church. And there's this beautiful picture in Revelation that says that um, when the new creation is ready finally, and we finally all get to go home, that the glory of all the peculiar nations is going to be brought in to beautify the new creation. So you'll have it's kind of a mosaic picture that not the monoculture will finally assemble, but all the diverse cultures redeemed by Jesus and where the good parts of those cultures are uh, exaggerated and the bad parts are diminished, eventually they come in and beautify the new creation. The gospel goes and transforms cultures. It doesn't replace the culture that it goes into. And that's why we preach and pray and sing in English and uh, play music that suits us, right? I mean, the music never suits everyone. <laughs> but generally, the music suits us. So, But what this meant for Peter and the circumcision party is that all of the Jewish cultural, cultural accoutrements were temporary. And they did not feel temporary, and they didn't think they were temporary. But I mean, the temple is temporary, the priesthood is temporary, the kosher laws are temporary. Circumcision is temporary. Um, you feel a little gypped, first generation there. They don't have to get circumcised. <laughs> That's, huh. um, but how do you process these things that have been the markers that set you apart from all the nations around you and say that those things are relative now and they're temporary and they don't matter? What did the circumcision party say? They said, you went to an uncircumcised person's home and ate. Like, that makes them them and not us. When um, David was fighting with Goliath, do you remember, remember what he said? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who taunts the armies of the living God? Right? It's the marker. You know you're Jewish because of your diet, because of your calendar, because of circumcision, uh, because of the temple. Um, You've got all these cultural markers. What are the cultural markers for a Christian? There's no diet. There are no special clothes. There's no language. Um, baptism marks us out. It's invisible. <laughs> you can't tell if somebody's been baptized just looking at them. Um, We don't have cultural markers. Sometimes I wish we did, but we don't. You know, the, uh, like Islam has a monoculture, right? Sharia law, uh, the halal diet, uh, clothes, beards, 
There are a lot of cultural markers, Arabic, that are, in every culture Islam touches, stay the same. We don't have that kind of thing. Judaism never really jumped its cultural banks either. Um, but Christians don't have cultural markers. We go and live as a holy and separate, unique people in the midst of the cultures of the world. And our uniqueness is moral and spiritual. It's not uh, external. We don't have cultural markers in the same way. So it's, uh, it's hard. This is, this is why we try at church to use our loudest voice talking about the central matters of the faith, the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed kind of issues uh, that have been consistent everywhere the church has existed in the world. And when we talk about things that are peculiar to us as Presbyterians or as Tucsonans, we talk with a softer voice about them because they're not as important as the central matters. Uh, We want to stress the central matters. If you start stressing the other matters, you wind up putting up roadblocks in the way of people who might otherwise come into the faith. And I'm sure we do that, but we don't want to, right? Because you don't want invisible, no vacancy signs up out front of your church uh, when people come in and figure out there's some kind of a lip, there are all sorts of cultural litmus tests they would have to pass to fit in here. And I'm sure there are, but we don't want them. We're trying to, we're trying to reduce them. It's just, it's just hard because you don't, you don't recognize your own cultural prejudices very easily. Um, and churches always struggle with this because you just assume my, my way of living has been derived straight from the Bible and all of my ideas are biblical convictions and any other mature Christian would share them. Most people behave pretty well and don't say this kind of thing out loud, but... You will hear occasionally people saying out loud things like, how could someone claim to be a Christian and do X? How could someone be a Christian and vote Democrat? I've actually heard that one out loud. Um, How could someone be a Christian and own guns? How could someone be a Christian and fight in uh, wars? It's very perplexing to me that... uh, Cornelius didn't have to change his job. He was not only uh, associated with the oppressing power that was holding Israel down, all their messianic hopes were that the Romans would be overthrown. He's an officer in the army of Rome. And when he's told um, the message from the angel, it's not, get out from that oppressing power and become Jewish. No, it's, it's believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. He didn't even have to change his job. How could someone be a Christian and oppose uh, legal immigration? How could someone be a Christian and dance? How could someone be a Christian and live in a house that big and expensive? How could someone be a Christian and eat meat? How could someone be a Christian and eat meat at a restaurant on Sunday? How could someone be a Christian and date? How could someone be a Christian and hunt? You could add to the list pretty easily, I'm sure, right? Um, But these are things that are not essential to the faith. The church argued about them. You know, the Jerusalem, the circumcision party, 
actually got their theology pretty good in this passage. They said, okay then, guess the Gentiles don't have to become Jewish, they're in. But the theology didn't take long to change. The attitudes took forever to change. They haven't changed yet. All through the New Testament, letters being written about people not being able to get their heads wrapped around this idea that Gentiles and Jews both have the same standing before God and that the cultural markers don't matter anymore. You know, some people think every day is alike. Some people think one day is more holy than another. Work it out amongst yourselves. You know, do it. I'm sure you'll do the right thing, Paul basically says. He says, this, these are things that are not biblically required or prescribed. I know you think your conviction about it's biblical, but let each one do what's right in his own mind. Vegetarians. How can, how can Christians not be vegetarians? How can Christians be vegetarians? Paul says, yeah, I know. Work it out. <laughs> you'll, you'll figure it out. I'm sure you'll do the right thing. You're going to have to learn to love each other and live together. These things are not the essentials. And so ever since, you know, cultural issues have been very hard for Christians to work out. It's what they're called to do, though. And if you want to be a church that's a portal for new people coming into the faith, it feels like the better you do with this, the more loving you are to your friends who are coming in. You know, So if we don't put like 10 hurdles, they've got to jump over culturally before they can ever hear about Jesus. And um, I'm sure they're... This is like bad breath. You, know, you don't know when you have bad breath, but everybody else knows when you have bad breath. Like if we've got all these hurdles for people to jump over before they hear about Jesus, they see them, but we don't. And so it's tough for us. But I think what we're called to do is to try to uh, be generous and loving with people as they're coming into the faith and not major on minor things. And Peter's learning that. I hope that we're learning that too. I love his conviction. You know, um, he says, if God's going to give his grace to all these people who are so different from me without requiring them to become Jewish, well, who am I to stand in his way? And... Uh, I'd like that to be my attitude, too. Who am I to stand in his way if he wants to bring people in and, and not make them, you know, Southern? <laughs> and that's okay, right? And, uh, and I like the Circumcision Party's conclusion, too. They said, you know what we're going to do? We're a little creeped out by all that this is requiring of us. Um, but our first response when we see people different from us coming in is to say, yes, we're excited about it, and we're going to glorify God over it. And we'll figure out how to live together as time goes on. That's what I want for us too. Right. Now let's pray.